at the end of the day, values can just be a piece of paper on a wall. If you really want your values to be lived and breathed, you're talking about them, you're making decisions about all of your systems around them, you're building them into what you do on a day-to-day -day basis because you see that they are genuinely critical for the organisation to achieve. So I think values can be somewhat superficial or if they're really adopted and embedded, then they can be a powerful force in an organisation. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, A Change of Pace for the Show, is a live recording from a ZRG event in New York City on September 26th. It's a conversation between my colleagues Larry Crema, one of my partners in the real estate recruiting practice at ZRG and former head of HR for both Sam Zell's equity office and for Simon Properties, and Amanda Fajak, the president of North America for one of ZRG's consulting arms, a company called Walking the Talk. The setup here is important. First, the ZRG event was a half-day symposium that we held for real estate HR leaders back in September in New York. We had two panels. I led the first panel, which was a conversation with Stephanie Birnbaum, the chief people officer at Heinz, and Jill Kissack, the America's head of HR for Cushman and Wakefield. That first panel was a conversation about the opportunities, challenges, and dynamics from the human capital side of two global, but two very different real estate businesses. One a global investor and developer, and the other a real estate services company. We were hoping to release that conversation as part one of this podcast, but the tape quality did not cooperate. I refer you to get the gist of that discussion to two prior Leading Voices episodes. You'll remember that Steph and Doug Holty together talked about innovation and human capital at Heinz two episodes ago. And Jill's chairman at Cushman and Wakefield, Brett White, was a guest back in February of 23, where we explored many of the same topics. You'll hear a lot of references to Steph and Jill's remarks in the conversation between Larry and Amanda, so I wanted to make sure you knew about that prior conversation. As is implied by its name, Walking the Talk is an advisory firm focused on consulting with companies on the topic of culture. Walk the Talk demystifies culture and takes it from squishy and intangible to the practical. As you'll hear from Amanda, we advise companies to identify, work through, find alignment, and then act upon culture as an actionable part of company strategy. There were a fair amount of questions from the audience, which unfortunately we were not able to record. So to make sense of the discussion, I've had to do some post-production inserts into the conversation to summarize some of the discussion from the audience and tie it back into Larry and Amanda's observations. Except for the intro, we've never done this kind of editing on the show, but hopefully this comes together for an interesting conversation. Leading Voices is a show that's foreign about leaders in the real estate industry. This episode, although we're talking about real estate companies throughout the conversation, from my perspective is universal in terms of its applicability to both leadership and corporate culture across industries. I invite you to share this episode with your friends outside the industry. I think that so many of the conversations on leading voices do transcend industry. Think Rick Caruso in the last episode, and so many of our guests whose pathways to leadership success and impact transcend the business. 
but this conversation especially has lessons for us all. Thank you, Amanda, and Walking the Talk for spending time with us and coming into our real estate world. I hope that you enjoy the episode and find the discussion on culture both provocative and useful. If you want to get in touch with Amanda or learn more about Walk the Talk, you can email Amanda at afajak, F-A-J-A-K, at zrgpartners.com, or go to zrgpartners.com and click under Consulting Solutions and Culture Consulting on the ZRG website to get to the Walk the Talk website. If you'd like to hear more, go to the archive on your favorite podcast app or at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. Please follow the show, please rate the show, and please share your favorite episodes with a friend. Link to me on LinkedIn, where I also post episodes. If you have questions, guest suggestions, or feedback, or want to learn more about how ZRG can help your company with its human capital needs, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the show. Thanks for coming. It's great to see some old friends and to make some new friends. So happy to be here. Our focus this morning, we'd like to take this in a little bit of a different direction, talk about culture, but have it be a little bit more interactive where Amanda has helped organizations globally around defining culture, transforming culture, sustaining culture. We've got a rich experience here in Amanda that I think we can all take advantage of. And we'd love to hear from you in terms of your experiences with culture. So we'd like this to be as interactive and as dynamic as you're comfortable. There wasn't that long time ago in real estate when culture was about casual Fridays and team building activities and a holiday party. And I'm sure some of you can remember those days. I cringe thinking about that now. I read something the other day that said the word culture in leading business publications has quadrupled just in the last two years. So culture is everywhere now. So I'm going to ask Amanda in a minute to just opine a bit on how we define culture and what that looks like. The definition we like on culture is one that's really practical. And the reason we like it is because we think it tells leaders everything they need to do in order to manage culture. And we talk about culture as patterns of behavior that are encouraged, discouraged, or tolerated by people and systems over time. And so the patterns of behavior, and you know, you know, we, when we pull culture further apart, you get down to deeper beliefs and underpinning values. But the reality is your culture is what you observe and what you experience every day. It's those habits, those patterns, that, um, that are existing in your organization. It's through what's encouraged both by the kind of the systems that you put in place, the, you know, the, the behaviors that get kind of encouraged by people, the way people are encouraged to spend their time, but also, you know, it might be the things that you don't tolerate and discourage. And I always say what you tolerate sets the standard in your culture. And, you know, from a quite an extreme example, if you walk in and somebody's um, being rude in a meeting or disrespectful and you never say anything, yeah. you may not say, actually, we've got a culture that encourages that, but by simply not saying anything, you're effectively saying, actually, that's okay, you know, in our, in our organization, in our culture, and you're setting a new standard for how things are done. And that can equally happen in the positive as well, by the way. So, so what goes into creating the culture that is desired in an organization? What are the different inputs? Where does it start with leadership, 
employees? What are some of the, what makes up a culture for an organization? So we break culture down into three bits. And one of my passions is taking culture out of a black box. So I think, um, you know, the days of culture being something that's soft and fluffy, it's kind of, if I ever hear that word, that's kind of one of my triggers. But, you know, what I loved about both Jill and Steph up on stage is they were talking about behavior and how people were operating in service of strategy and in service of the business outcomes that you're trying to get. And I think if you think of culture in service of what is it that you're fundamentally trying to achieve? How do you need your people to behave in order to achieve that? And then what is that risk if they don't, uh, Jill and I were talking about that earlier, what, what is the risk if they don't behave in that way it becomes really clear. But the reality is that your culture isn't created by a town hall. It's not created by the amazing company brochure. Um, it is the unspoken messages that people get around what's really valued in the organization. And, you know, in our experience, that comes through three sources. So behavior, particularly what gets role modeled by leaders. So what leaders do, how they behave, what they tolerate, it really sets the tone in the organization. And that's because we are inherently tribal creatures, aren't we? I mean, we walk into an organization, we look around and we go, okay, how am I expected to behave? And what I do is I look to the top, I look at the most successful people and I emulate them because I wanna be successful. So how leaders behave, what gets role modeled is really important. The second thing we talk about is symbols. And symbols are use of finite resources. So there's only so much time, there's only so much money, there are only so many promotions, there are only so many office spaces. I'm sure you'd challenge me on that one. And there's only so many words in the English, the French, the German, the Spanish language. And the choices we make around those are really important. Are we gonna spend time doing performance reviews on our brokers? Are we not? You know, even the mere decision to do that sends a message about the culture. Are we going to talk only about global versus local things? That's a decision about a use of finite resource, which is time. So symbols are really important, then systems. So the tangible systems from your HR entry to your exit, your reporting, how transparent you are or not, all of those things make a difference. So we, what we say is your culture is created systematically right now. Every company has a culture, whether you manage it or not, and it's through your behaviors, your symbols, and your systems, and that's how it's anchored. So if you want to shift your culture, you need to be disruptive enough across enough of the behaviors, the symbols, and the systems in order to create you know, shift. What, say change. more about that. When you say disruptive, what does that look like? And then maybe think about, you know, I'd be curious to hear some of your observations about Steph and Jill in terms of their respective organizations mm. coming from two different places. Like, how do you, how do you, what's that disruption mean? So I think the first thing is, what is the culture you want? Okay, so, you know, one of the mistakes I see a lot of organizations make is they want a little bit of everything. And then the old adage is, if you go after everything, you kind of get nothing. And so I think the companies that have the most powerful cultures and the clearest cultures are really clear of distinctively what are the couple of things that makes them unique. You come and work here because actually we're going to be innovating. We're going to be breaking the mold. We're going to be challenging the status quo. Do I come and work here because actually I really love the rigor, the discipline, 
you know, that you have in terms of, you know, I really feel I can trust and rely on everybody in this organization. Do I come here because I'm part of uh, an environment, you know? So I think being really clear and distinctive on the culture that you want becomes really important. But then it's also then about putting enough energy into the encouraging the things that you want and then not tolerating the things that account to that, you know, becomes really key. And so, you know, we talked about leadership leadership development before. So leaders, their own behavior, their own mindset. I've done this for 25 years and I have not yet done a culture transformation that hasn't involved leaders looking at themselves and, and kind of how they, how they behave and how they operate. So. And it starts at the top, right? Or is it bottom up, top down? I think I've seen lots of good examples of culture transformation where you've got agitation and you've got kind of a drive from the bottom. But the reality is that can only be sustained for so long if the leaders aren't taking it forward from the top. Because the danger is, you know, we're called walking the talk. And our founder, when she kind of wrote the book, the question that the publisher said to her, what is the tenet, what is the essence of culture and really effectively transforming culture? And the essence is about the link between what you say and what you do. And so there have been so many culture transformations that, you know, people have come to us saying, look, we're just stuck. We don't know what to do. And part of the problem is it's because fundamentally, fundamentally the leader mindset and the behavior just doesn't line up with what they're saying. So, you know, getting those incongruency is really important. You know, we talked about it earlier, like, like in real estate, you've got very different businesses, very yeah. different employee groups. You've got people that allocate capital, make investments. They're the ones that create 90% of the value for the company. And then you've got the frontline workers that operate portfolios and create experiences for clients. Very different employee groups, very different influences on the organization. How do you kind of create a common environment for all? I mean, I think it's a decision point. I don't think you have to. I think you've got a choice over, you know, what you're ultimately trying to create. I mean, I work with a lot of clients who very deliberately and distinctively choose to have different cultural focus areas on different parts of the business. Now, in order to do that, you've got to be really conscious. Your systems, if they're all really centralized, are going to be driving certain behaviors. So you've got to be practical about whether that's possible. But I think it's about what is the message you ultimately want to send? What is the outcome you're trying to achieve strategically? If there are certain things such as customer centricity and the customer's experience, you know, you actually want something consistent, irrespective of who you interact with inside your organization. And it might look different if I'm a broker or if I'm, you know, in another part of the organization. But you've got to, I think you've got to be really clear on, you know, ultimately in service of what and what you're trying to achieve. And I think you've got a choice point whether you want to go for one or all. The only thing I would argue is, in my experience working with very large global organizations, that even when you've got lots of people in lots of different countries, there is often a red thread that still flows through the organization about consistent ways of either making decisions, the way that we reward, the way ideas are treated, the extent to which you know I'm, I'm held accountable. All of those things do tend to, because of the way your systems are structured, if they're centralized, do tend to align across the organization. Coming up is Amanda's response to a comment from the VP of Talent Acquisition at Berkadia, 
about the importance of a highly collaborative culture at her firm. You'll remember my conversation with Justin Wheeler, the CEO of Bercati, on the show back in May. A few months after my interview with Justin, he and I had breakfast, and I told him that he really did walk the talk because I'd heard from several friends who were his direct reports on how he interacts daily with them. In his case, the CEO's words and actions are consistent and sincere and come from the top in reality, not just in articulation. Back to Amanda. I always say, if you bring out the mouse pads and the lanyards too soon in any, in any culture transformation, you've probably lost the exercise. So really it is about, you know, how do you kind of really engage people in terms of hearts and minds at the very top and getting them aligned. And it's, you know, it's not often just the behaviors, it's the deeper beliefs, you know. So for example, you know, if we you're struggling to have one team, you know, is there a sense of, you know, we know best in our organization? You know, is there kind of people that fundamentally think they have all the answers? Because if that's the case, you're unlikely to have people who are curious and open and asking questions and collaborating with other people. So, you know, what are the kind of mindsets that you need to really underpin the culture that you're trying to build? as well, that'd be key. What's the role of values in building a, building a culture? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, values can just be a piece of paper on a wall. It ultimately comes down to if they are truly an articulation of how you need people to think and behave to deliver on what you need as an organisation, then I think they can be the glue that holds an organisation together. I think part of the challenge... I've experienced is, you know, and I literally had one client whose people sat around a campfire with the, with their marshmallows and, you know, sat there going, what would we like in terms of the values of our organisation? And it didn't have any, any substance to the reality. So when those people who had this wonderful kind of glowing s'mores experience around the campfire went back into kind of their busy day-to-day realities, there was nothing in those values that they really were motivated to put their energy and attention to. And the reality is, you know, what you're talking about is if you really want your values to be lived and breathed, you're talking about them, you're making decisions about all of your systems around them, you're building them into what you do on a day-to-day basis because you see that they are genuinely critical for the organisation to achieve. So I think values can be somewhat superficial or if they're really adopted and embedded, then they can be a powerful force in an organization. There were more comments from the audience and especially about the importance of leaders, again, actually walking the talk in terms of consistency and authenticity in their daily interactions versus just empty talking the talk. You have to sincerely model the behaviors and values that you want to pervade your company. Back to Amanda. The thing that amazes me is that when you step into leadership roles or as you move up in organizations, you know, it's pretty rare you're not taught how to read a P&L, you know, how to kind of do some of the basics. Yet, how many people, you know, get taught about actually their role as influencers on the behaviour of others, how they are leaders of culture? I mean, it astounds me, you know, the number of times we do kind of leading culture sessions with leaders and it's a revelation to them that they cast a shadow and then what that I'm a leader and then what I do and others emulate that, it's... It's kind of, I think it's interesting, but I think it's kind of terrifying at the same time that, you know, you're given, you know, this kind of could be 10, 20, 100, 1,000 people 
and you don't, you're not given the kind of you know, routing instructions on what do I do? How do I influence? And so I think part of what you're talking about, I experience a lot as people just underestimate the impact that they have and are not sufficiently thoughtful, particularly about those symbols. And the thing I love about symbols is that they are such quick wins. They're really easy things that leaders can be much more thoughtful about, you know, in terms of an everyday that can influence your culture. You know, who's the first person I would cancel a meeting for? Who would I never cancel a meeting for? What's the first thing I talk about in a meeting? What's the last thing? You know, what do I kind of um, spend my time and energy on and who with and who don't I spend any time and energy with? And all of those little things can, can send big messages. I think the other thing that, you know, I know it's a really hard job, what you're talking about, but I do think that one of the critical roles of HR in culture transformation is what we would call the conscience and the coach. So I actually applaud you for the fact that you do kind of ring up the manager and, and do that because actually that is, you know, and you do need more critical mass of people doing that, but that is a really important role of HR because actually you are there to be part of that disruptor and that having the courage to challenge and not tolerate and, you know, role model setting that tone. So sometimes I think you feel you, it might be you, but actually it's you also role modeling. So I, I really want to kind of acknowledge that that's not an easy job, but it's actually a really important one. We then had a conversation about the meaning of values within our organizations, a topic that you know well is important to me from Leading Voices. The question came from the head of talent in an affordable housing organization where values can easily and legitimately be front and center. But the deeper conversation then became about articulating values in organizations not dedicated to an obvious social mission. And again, you know from leading voices that I believe mainstream real estate companies can also articulate a purpose and clear sense of values, both internal and external to the broader community and their stakeholders. If you listen carefully, most of the guests on Leading Voices have articulated such a clear purpose and values for their businesses on our show. Back to Amanda. And the thing I, I always think, you know, your values will bump up against each other, right? And it's about the conversations you have around that. I think that is the most important. It's not the fact that you can absolutely always fall on one side or another side of a value, but it's actually, you know, spending time thinking about and talking about those conflicts and the implications of those and then making a decision that is very conscious and thoughtful is, I think, the most powerful. I think where, where companies lose traction on values and cynicism builds is where you say one thing and then everything you do is the, is the opposite. You know, I was working with a bank recently and they were saying customer centricity, customer centricity, customer centricity. They were market driven, end of each quarter. Anything related to the customer was cut. You know, we, we basically pull back. And so people go, well, customer centricity matters till the end of quarter and we're not hitting our numbers, which actually means it doesn't really matter at all. So, you know, it's a case of, you know, how do you kind of have those open dialogues? And what, is, what do we then really mean by customer centricity? One of my issues is that there is a lot of empty talk around culture within many of our organizations. One of the tropes I've heard so often, and you do see it in those posters in old style lunchrooms, is one team. Amanda jumps on that one in the conversation. So the one team one, I think, is really interesting. You know, so everyone, when you say the word one team, what's the first thing you think of? When you say one team culture, what's the first thing you think of? Give me an example behavior, 
way of working? What, what's it, what do you think of? Collaborative. Collaborative. What are you doing in a one-team culture? How are people behaving? They're, they're behaving the same. They're doing the same thing. Yeah. What else is happening? You have the same goal. You have the same goal. Okay. What else? Strengths are complementing each other. Doing the exact same thing. Maximizing the value. Okay, so one team, what if I say actually what's the difference between a swim team and a football team? What shifts between those two? They are going for the same sort of goal. They're going for a team goal at the end of the day. So I think sometimes when you're looking at, at values and culture and how you define it, sometimes you need to go a click down as well because we use things like one team very superficially, customer-centric, really superficial. But if you have to click down and go, okay, so with one team, do we want to be a swim team or would it be a football team? Actually, we can win with both. And actually with a football team, we're going to be doing a lot more passing to each other. We're going to be kind of ending, we're going to really each have our role that we play to get to the outcome. Whereas with a swim team, we're all going to be kind of in our own lanes, but driving towards a common goal. We're going to be celebrating together. We're going to be kind of you know, in this ultimately for the end game. But I think it's really important when you're thinking about what your culture means. And I think, you know, that was a really good example, thinking about the behaviours. What does that look like? Specifically, when we say customer-centric, does that mean the customer is always right? We always do everything for the customer. Or just does it mean that, you know, we really think about relationship is key? That's what we mean by customer-centricity. So I think that specificity kind of makes a difference and helps. So I think you've always got a choice how you behave in any given situation, right? So I do believe behaviour is a choice. So, for example, when we do work with companies, helping them define culture, there's two steps to it. One is the aspiration without reality. So if we really wanted to achieve our goals in the next three to five years, how do we need people to behave? Which is a little bit distance from the pragmatics of how the organisation is operating today. But the second part is we always do a diagnostic on the current culture. And my belief is that your target culture should be a balance of the essence of who you are and a stretch to who you want to be. And it's actually that balance that allows it to be authentic but allows you to move to where you want to go. Okay, so that would be kind of how I would think about that. So one of the elephants in the room always these days is what do we do in post-COVID workplace dynamics? Is it four days a week? Is it three days a week? Is it five days a week? How does remote work fit into all this? Here's Amanda's thoughts. Yeah, I think return to office obviously is a really hot topic. But, you know, my, my experience is that it's around some of the social norms about how we show up is a really interesting one and what's and how we operate inside an office for people that are young and new and coming in. I think that's an interesting thing. Let's not underestimate that we actually have to kind of teach people a few basics of how you operate inside, inside a work environment. I mean, I think what it has done is it's redefined what our workplaces are for. And when we come into a workplace now, we, we don't expect just to sit at our desk and not interact with people. Coming into the office is now where we want to connect because the one thing we've lost, we've actually shown we can be pretty productive. So this isn't necessarily about doing the basic work. It's about community connection. I think to some extent innovation. I think to some extent it's about talent development. It's around 
you know, opportunities for people to kind of advance. So it's about what is the purpose of the workplace now? So in those two to three days, when people are in the workplace, how do you structure something that is meaningful? And, you know, that two, two class workforce, I think is a really, really interesting one because, you know, how do you interact and, and relate to people that are physically there relative to people that might be dialing in and on a phone? And so, you know, are the people who are able to come into an office more often advantaged over people that for various reasons can't? So I think it does kind of pro- provide some some interesting challenges to, to be thinking about. So culture doesn't have to suffer given the remote environments that we find ourselves in or what do as HR leaders need to pay attention to to maintain the culture in such a remote environment right now? Well, you know, I had um, actually somebody in the real estate business say to me at the beginning of the pandemic, Amanda, we're going to have to stop working on culture because I can, until I can buy my team pizzas, we're not going to be able to do any work on culture. <laughs> but if you, you come back to the definition of you know, how you shape culture through behavior, through symbols, through systems, you're constantly shaping culture, even remotely. So it, it doesn't matter. It's just some of the mechanisms aren't available to you when you're not in the face-to-face environment. So what the face-to-face allows you is many more tools at your disposal to influence that. So that would be kind of one thing I would say. And then I think the other thing I would say is that many of your global organisations, you have people all over the world who aren't necessarily in offices together. You still have a culture. Those people still work together. They still connect together. So I'm not sure that being remote stops culture in any way. What other trends are you seeing with culture when you think about the globalization of businesses today, generational differences, leadership development, like what trends are happening in organizations that impact culture that we should be thinking about? The big, big trend is around pace. No one has yet turned to me and said, could you just do this a little slower? Or we've got plenty of time, you know, take take your time. Um, The rate at which people need to achieve impact and outcomes is accelerating. And, you know, we've gone from a VUCA world to a Benny world. So it's brittle, what is it? Brittle, ambiguous and incomprehensible, I think, and chaotic and incomprehensible, I think it is, which is quite depressing. But the, the concept is that actually this idea of order in our society is gone, right? You know, we, we kind of, we can't predict what's going to happen next. And actually, at the best thing we can do is prepare our workforces to be genuinely adaptive. And we've talked about the change management kind of cycle and change management's going to, you know, and people are waiting for change to end. I think we're really recognizing now we're actually, the more we can equip people to be curious, to be open, to be kind of thinking about how they adapt to the cycles around them, I think is really important. I mean, AI obviously is going to be a major game changer, you know, in terms of the skill sets that people have, but how they approach that, you know, do I go into the workforce thinking that the skill set I bring is the one I'm going to leave with? It's unlikely. So that kind of capacity for adaptability is, I think, absolutely becomes a core capability now in terms of you know successful cultures. I think the one trend I am seeing in the marketplace is in terms of the pattern of behaviour that's most needed in most organisations is the capacity to prioritise. And I think what's really interesting is that this explosion of choice that's 
exists out in the kind of macro environment. There are more opportunities, more choices, more things available, more accessibility means that, you know, when we had three things to choose from, you know, it was easy, right? Now we have this wealth of things that we could go after. We have these wealths of information we have to process and people are getting overwhelmed on that. And how do you get really prioritized? Coming back to your vision mission question before, actually purpose becomes really important about focusing what we're here to do and where we channel our energy, being able to kind of be really good at fit for purpose. We're seeing a pattern of behavior I call the backing every horse pattern of behavior, whereas I don't want to lose. So I'm just going to put a little bit of money on every horse and I'm going to spread my energy and go after everything. And it's exhausting. And it's really, really, I think, going to have some negative impacts on people inside organizations because that capacity and that work rate to try and keep pace with so much can only be sustained for so long. And we'll start to, I think, see some physical, I think, as well as psychological side effects uh, from that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I really loved how Steph and Jill were talking about HR and service of strategy. So the other bit I would add to that is in service of strategy, where HR can really talk the language of the business, can really relate to kind of how the people systems, the, the employee experience end-to-end drives business outcomes. That ends up being, I think, I don't know what's your... I think focus and priority is absolutely important. I don't know how much you hear from your business leaders, I want this, I want this, I want this, and we're all resource constrained, right? So how do you execute that gets the maximum the maximum impact without spreading the entire HR function too thin. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it came, came up before we, as well is that consistency, you know, persistence, you know, reinforcing it through the behaviors, through the symbols, through the systems on an ongoing basis really is the way that you build the culture and, and keep it really kind of powerful inside your organization. I wanted to bring Larry's direct experience as Chief Human Resources Officer at both Equity Office and Simon Properties, working under two of our industry's titans, Sam Zell and David Simon, into the conversation. Here are his thoughts. And my experience in those two organizations couldn't be any more different, frankly. Like Sam Zell, one of his great legacies, I was mentioning this to Amanda the other day, like one of his great legacies or the culture that he's created in his businesses. And whether it's equity residentials, which is one of the largest REITs, or his private private equity group, like he created an environment and a culture that permeated the organization. And frankly, not all of those businesses have robust HR programs. They they really don't. But it's it's really about it's really about leadership and transparency and being consistent to the company's values and the company's aspirations. Like every one of the equity companies, you you walk in the office and it looks and feels the same. The leaders have the same values. It's amazing because Sam was not heavily involved in each one of the businesses, but he set a tone and he set an expectation and, and leaders followed it and, and he, he promoted and we developed leaders that were consistent with those values, probably more than more than any more than anything else. I couldn't speak any more differently about Simon. Like Simon, it almost had three cultures, if that makes sense. There was the property level company and that had its culture. And then there was the leadership culture of the company, 
which was probably David and his top 12 people. And then there was the corporate culture. They were all very different and had its own unique characteristics. Both companies, to Matt's point, wildly successful, different leadership styles, different leadership values. But it all for me came down to leaders living the values, living the behavior that the founder or the CEO was looking for. But very, very different, very, very different environments. Um, Sam often talked about it, the meritocracy and the value of innovation and creativity and having fun and results. And the environment Simon was was much more top down and more autocratic, not in the field organization and not below the most senior level. That's why it was it was an interesting dichotomy between those two organizations, both wildly successful companies in their own way, but very, very different approach to culture and leadership and and success. I wanted Amanda to talk a little bit more about walking the talk as an advisory firm and how we interact with clients, as well as articulating the Taylor Assessment, a new tool that we've developed together at ZRG. Now, Taylor Assessment, for those of you who don't know, Walking the Talk and ZRG have built a fantastic tool, which is really around how do I prioritize archetypes, different kind of patterns of behavior and how I would like to show up in the day-to-day. So, for example, um, I love being one team. I love being customer-centric. I love being innovative. I love contributing to community and society. I love, you know, delivering on my promises and being really good at risk management. I really love um, being people first and coaching and empowering others. There's only so much time in any day. And unfortunately, we do make trade-offs inside the day-to-day. So the Taylor assessment, the way it's structured, is it gets you to make those trade-offs in the assessment and says, in an average day, which of these things would I prefer to do? And it's agonizing because you want to do all of them, right? But actually, The reality is I will make choices because my time is finite, one of my most precious resources. And what you value, where you spend time says what you really value. And so that's what it really kind of has bubbling up to the top, the Taylor assessment, you know, those things that ultimately we truly value. And so, you know, in terms of individually, if these are the things I'm most likely to prioritise, when we look at that across the leadership team, they are the things we are most likely to drive inside our culture, inside our organization. Now, you know, I don't believe our fate is is written, right? So by knowing that, you can therefore make choices of things you might want to dial up, be much more conscious about, put much more effort into. So I think what the Taylor assessment does, I mean, it, A, it helps you recruit for people that probably are a fit with what you're trying to do, but it also does help you kind of as a leadership team think about, you know, all things being equal. If we put no effort into this, what what is likely to show up in our culture? So walking the talk, our methodology is based on 25 years of working with companies. So that's um, really our background. And we've done this all over the world with lots of different companies. And we pride ourselves on being very practical. And hopefully you've got some really good practical things out of today because that's really what we intend to do. So we do work with companies in four key areas. And 
So we have a methodology, not a cookie cutter process, I would say, is because we have done this a lot. The four steps really are, you've got to design the culture. So if you do not yet know the culture that you are trying to drive towards, we believe that that needs to be defined in service of your strategy. So with your executive team, where are you going to be in the future? What is it to, what is your culture in service of? What is your culture today? What is causing your culture to be the way it is today? What are the behaviour symbols and systems that shape your culture? What are the beliefs that are driving how people behave? How do those behaviours drive the business outcomes? Helping you answer those questions. And then really getting you clear on, okay, where do we focus? Where do we want to channel our energy? What does that look like? And sometimes that re redoes the company's values, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it provides a cultural goal that you need to have for the next sort of 18 months to unlock whatever performance challenges you have. We work around culture planning, how do you get focused on the few key things for change, leaders as role models, how do you, leaders kind of really lead from the front, what does role modeling look like, what are the critical behaviors, and then how do you activate and unlock culture across your people managers, across your influencers and throughout the organisation. Thanks to listening in to today's program. For more information, you can contact me at mslepin at ZRG Partners, or you can also get in touch directly with Larry at lkrema, K-R-E-M-A at zrgpartners.com, or Amanda at afajak, F-A-J-A-K, at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.